Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the pandemic has exposed weaknesses across all supply chains that have threatened Canada's economy. Tackling that problem is critical to our recovery. So what can the government do? We're going to talk about that. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a direct plea to the Canadian Parliament yesterday and the U.S. Congress today. We're going to discuss both of those with Daniel Bailon, director of the McGill Institute for Study in Canada. And on the cusp of an election, is Doug Ford's government trying to quietly privatize health care? We'll answer that as well. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. An interesting note today from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce about, uh, well, trying to get back on our feet economically, really, uh, which is what this is all about. You know, we some of the COVID restrictions, many of the COVID restrictions are being lifted these days, but the economy is not bouncing back on its own. It's going to need some assistance, some help, and some government initiatives to try to get back on their feet. Rocco Rossi is the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, good morning, first of all, Rocco. Good to have you back in the program. I hope you're doing well today. Always great to be with you, Bill. Thanks so much. Good to have you with us as well. Let's let's talk about this, and, and let's talk about what's going to be needed here. I, I know there was, in some people's minds anyway, an expectation that, well, when all these COVID restrictions get lifted, uh, everything's just going to bounce back. People are going to go back to work. We're going to start buying things and spending our money, and everything's going to be fine. I don't know that anybody anticipated things like inflation and supply chain problems, but we got them. Uh, how do we get out of this mess? Well, look, at no one uh, grows up thinking, one day I'm going to be a supply chain expert. Uh, but it, <laughs> is the, it is the topic du jour. And, and the reality is um, we may be lifting restrictions here, but we're part of a global economy. And what happens in other countries has an incredible impact on us. So... For instance, there have been uh, very large outbreaks in uh, in China and other far eastern countries in Hong Kong, places where um, a lot of both goods and parts that go into goods that we uh, manufacture are produced, and those are backing up. We saw that early days uh, with microchips and auto production, but it's expanded to many more items clearly the war in in ukraine is adding additional ple- uh, pressures on uh, on energy on food uh, the sanctions on russia causing issues with uh, vital minerals like palladium and platinum that are crucial in catalytic converters in the auto parts so lots of issues building we're hearing that there could be potential strike action at cp that would be another in this case, self-inflicted uh, wound on on the economy, just as we're trying to get back on our feet. Were we living with this false impression that everything was fine, that we had all these bases covered? Yeah, we need all those minerals if we're going to move into EVs, but no, we got trade agreements with everybody. Everything's going to be just fine. All of a sudden, all the, I think that, that sense of security that we had seems to have blown up in our faces. Well, look at Bill, you're, you're absolutely right. For the last several decades, um, industry around the world has effectively worshipped at the altar of what's called just-in-time inventory. Yeah. That because you have global supply chains, you can have relatively little of your parts inventory on site and you will be replenished on a daily, weekly basis to keep everything going. And what we've learned is there's a need for just-in-case inventory. 
And, and that's the really one of the keys within the note that we presented. And it's a, it's a very difficult balance because on the one hand, we need um, local manufacturing strategies, national, provincial, to make sure that some key pieces, we make our supply chain more robust, including in some crucial areas, figuring out how we're gonna produce it ourselves. Uh, but the balance has to be uh, very delicate because at the end of the day, we're a trading nation. We depend for some 40% of our GDP on global trade. And so if we start cutting off other countries, they'll cut us off. And that's not a good thing for anyone. I, I know business people are always going to say, well, look at the bottom line is, you know, get the product on the shelf and get it sold. And that's what it comes down to. I remember, Rocco, many, many years ago, and I mean many years ago, when I was going through school, I, I worked at a grocery store stocking shelves, and I think a lot of us did. I, I remember my boss telling me, he says, don't order, you know, cornflakes until you can sell the whole damn thing. Don't, don't, he says, if it's in the basement in storage, it's not doing me any good. We never had a buffer because uh, we knew it was always going to put it on the shelf, it's going to be sold. Now we don't have the product to put on the shelf. We always expected it was always going to be there for us. And I guess the realization, as you've just mentioned, is it's not there all the time if we need it now. Exactly right. And there's so many elements to this. I mean, we have to do a much better job in terms of investing in our supply chain infrastructure. We have to make sure when it comes to things like energy, um, I mean, it's, it is a bit ridiculous that we're, uh, we have been importing uh, a half a billion dollars of oil from Russia and many billions more from other countries into the East Coast, while at the same time uh, producing surplus in, in the West and not being able to make sure that we optimize our own energy supplies here, uh, here in Canada. We need to make sure that the current dispute uh, that, that we're having with the governor of Michigan with respect to line five and making sure that vital uh, supplies are getting into uh, Sarnia and then points, uh, points east for North American energy security, that's crucial. We need to make sure that people understand and that young people understand that there actually is a phenomenal career in trucking and logistics. Uh, and in the same way that we've put a push on skilled trades, that that is an area of skilled trades that this economy very much, uh, very much needs. Well, that's because uh, this is not new. I, you've talked to us about this for years now, Rocco, about the transportation sector. And and again, I guess like so many other things, we kind of took it for granted until it wasn't there <laughs> uh, during the pandemic. And we had these uh, these supply chain problems that are going on. And I've talked to a number of people in that industry uh, on this program that have simply said, we don't have drivers. You know, even if the product is over in that warehouse and you want to get it over to the store over here in, in, in London or in Hamilton, uh, we, we can't get it there in time because we just don't have the drivers. How do you how do you attract people to an industry like this and, and, and tell them, hey, this is this is a career? Well, part of it is is education because people uh, really know relatively little um, about it. And in the same way that, um, you know, within elementary and high schools now, there is more of a focus on on educating kids around the options and and the real career paths in skilled trades. This is another thing that needs to uh, uh, needs to be focused on. And you're also seeing compensation, training, other things increasing uh, to be able to attract and retain 
key workers, because while we're, we've been hearing, you're exactly right, Bill, we've been hearing a lot about um, supply chain disruptions in the last several months uh, that, that really COVID uh, triggered in a very large way. The labor issue is something that pre-existed COVID that has been exacerbated by COVID, but will continue on in our recent Ontario Economic Report we reported that 62% of our membership is having difficulty finding labor. And that's something that, again, pre-existed uh, the, um, uh, the COVID pandemic and that we need to have real concerted action and resources focused to turn around. You know, we just talked a couple of months ago, and I think you and I had this discussion too, about the housing crisis, and it is a crisis, uh, not just here in Ontario, but on a national basis. But what the government did at that point, if you recall, Rocco, was they, they struck a task force of people in the real estate industry, people in the building industry, and, and people that had uh, environmental issues that, that needed to be dealt with. They all sat around a table, and they came up with a series of recommendations after getting input from the public. Uh, and now, it's up to the government now to, to kind of take that paper and work, run with it. Why aren't they doing that with this issue? Well, there are bits and pieces of it, but you're absolutely right. It needs to be a concerted, all-hands-on-deck approach. And, and what's key, Bill, is very often when, when a report or a commission is pulled together, it's a way of delaying decision. It's a way of uh, extending the, the time and hoping the problem goes away or creating a report that then sits on a shelf. This has to be done with a focus on speed and with a focus on applying what we learn immediately. Because as we've learned through COVID, and maybe you know this is one of the, the, the good things that we can pull out of it is when we're faced with a crisis, Government can actually move pretty quickly. We'd love it to move more quickly, but it, it can move quickly, and we need to do it in this area very crucially. You talked about uh, the transportation and others, and of course, you know, trucking is a big part of that. We all understand that. And I think we've come to understand just how important it is. There's another element, though, that in, in the policy paper that you guys talked about from from the Ontario Chamber of the Rock, Rock, and it's it's short sea shipping, which is something that's so integral to this. Uh, and, and in the Hamilton, actually around the Golden Horseshoe, we know that because Hamilton, Oshawa, uh, great port cities, uh, we rely on that. We're heading into the you know the shipping season now that we're getting into springtime. Uh, you talked about you know aging infrastructure. Uh, that's a key problem that we have here, and it's a great way to move goods back and forth and get them to market quickly. Does, does the government understand the importance of that? Uh, there has been nowhere near the focus that's needed. You you you've hit another key part of the of of the report. I mean, when people think of you know shipping, they they tend to uh, they tend to focus on you know the port of Vancouver or Long Beach and yeah. etc. But as you've pointed out, the Great Lakes cities um, are crucial ports in supply chain, and that inland sea shipping. Um, it, it, uh, it, it takes trucks off the, off the road, can be environmentally far uh, uh, superior as, a, as an option and is really uh, crucial. But to take advantage of it, you need updated uh, port uh, facilities. You need logistics around that. And that very often requires uh, development, construction, et cetera, and, and people, um, 
you know, the, the old saying was two things you never want to see made, sausages and laws. Uh, the third thing is infrastructure, uh, because everyone wants the benefits of it completed and no one wants the trouble of the time during which it has to be uh, built. Um, but if we're going to face these crises, we have to understand that we need to increase speed of approvals and and speed to shovels uh, in the ground if we're going to solve these problems. Well, I can remember years ago having a, a meeting with some folks at Queens Park, uh, and the, the, the phrase they used at that time was Highway H2O, simply saying, look, this is a solution, or at least part of the solution anyway, to the congestion on our roads and highways, et cetera, is to start using our waterways. And, and you know, we right around here on the Great Lakes, you know, we talk about getting raw materials to factories and things like that. That's an ideal way. And and I thought that's a great idea. Let's let's move with that. Well, that's that's a long time ago, and I don't see governments even talking about it anymore. Wishing doesn't make it so. You've got to focus uh, attention. You've got to put dollars against it, um, and that is absolutely a, an area that you know several of the the mayors of those uh, uh, towns understand the uh, uh, the potential, but you're not seeing concerted efforts by all levels of government, which is what is needed because no municipality is in a position to make the necessary investment to modernize those facilities. And, and that goes back to your original point that we just mentioned a second ago here. Talk to the people in the business. Talk to the people in industry. I mean, government doesn't have all the solutions. We know that uh, because they don't have all the expertise and they don't have the experience in a lot of these areas. And I, I'm, I'm befuddled now why the, our government here in Ontario isn't just saying, look, let's sit down and do something about this. we got a problem here. It's the, you know, why we're not going to get back to quote-unquote normal until we do some tweaking here. And they don't seem to be talking about it yet. Well, and that's part of the purpose of uh, of uh, the document that we produced in hopes yeah. to focus the debate on exactly these issues. Look, it, you know, we we know we've had to to focus on the pandemic, but now we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We need to have in place the key building blocks to uh, to re-crank up the uh, the economy and to continue to to grow and to build. You're, you're seeing now with the uh, influx of, of refugees, immigrants from around the world, much as you know we feel we have problems, at the end of the day, we are still a shining beacon relative to the rest of the world. But if we're going to absorb all of those people, if we're going to continue to grow the economy, we have to focus on putting the building blocks in place to be able to do that on a sustainable and cost-effective basis. Well, as you say, we did not anticipate a lot of the stuff that we're actually dealing with right now, including things like inflation uh, and, uh, well, a war that's happening in Europe right now that's having an impact on so many things. Uh, some of the solutions and some of the things that we need to talk about here are included in this report. You can go to the webpage, by the way, for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce uh, and uh, check out the 2022 Ontario Economic Report. Uh, as always, Rocco, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for the great work that you and the Chamber are doing, and uh, we'll see how the government responds to this. But uh, appreciate our conversation today. Well, uh, they respond when great voices like yours shine a light on it and put it on air. We'll keep doing what we can hit this end. Thanks a lot, Rocco. Take care. Thank you, sir. Rocco Rossi, the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Vladimir Zelensky just finished his address to the Joint Session of Congress down in the States. Yesterday, of course, he addressed the Canadian Parliament 
and uh, basically just said, look, his people just want to live. In an address to uh, Parliament yesterday, Zelensky, who was speaking through a translator, of course, appealed to the Western countries, including Canada, to enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Can you imagine when you, when you call your friends, your friendly nation, and you ask, please close the sky, close the airspace, please stop the bombing. How many more cruise missiles have to fall on our cities until you make this happen? Very impassioned, uh, very emotional speech yesterday, and another one today to uh, to the U.S. Uh, Congress. So, where is this all going to go, and 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 what reaction is well the U.S. Congress and Canada and then one else in NATO uh, going to do with uh, the the I think very pointed message from uh, President Zelensky? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Daniel Bailan, who is the director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Uh, Daniel, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for the invitation. I want to talk about yesterday, certainly, and because the impact it had on, on the Canadian Parliament. But uh, we we need to obviously include what was just said a couple of moments ago. As a matter of fact, as Zelensky wrapped up his uh, his address to the uh, joint session of the U.S. Congress and Senate, this is not just the this is not my my standard speech that I'm going to give to to the U.K. to the he's tailored his message to each one of these countries, and I think it's a very effective tool. I, I'd like to get your assessment on what you've heard over the last few days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, he referred to. Uh... Uh, to uh, American icons like Martin Luther King, you know, I have a dream. La- yesterday, he mentioned the CN Tower during his, uh, uh, his speech to Parliament, man- saying, you know, could you imagine if the CN Tower was, uh, was bombed and so forth. So I think it's, he's a very good communicator. That's uh, clear. And um, I'm not sure who the speech writer is, but uh, certainly it is very effective. Um, and uh, is someone Zelensky who has become President Zelensky who has become really uh, an icon, uh, a symbol of resistance for his people, and I think his message is uh, is very powerful. And, and it's it's interesting, as you say, the way he's tailored this. You know, when he talked to the UK Parliament uh, a week or so ago, you know, he referenced Churchill. I, actually, the, the, his speech had very much of a, a Churchill overtone to it. You know, we'll fight in the streets, we'll fight everywhere, etc. Uh, very much like the speech that Churchill gave, of course, to the British Parliament uh, just before the uh, the Blitz in, in in London yesterday. As you mentioned, he talked about you know how do you explain this to your children? What if what if the CN Tower got bombed? What if bombs were going off in Vancouver and Toronto? And just this morning, in his speech to the U.S., uh, he referenced 9-11 and said, you know, when, when you were attacked, the world came to your assistance. Uh, and basically said, so, you know, we're asking for that help now. It, it's, 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 he really knows how to, to nail this and actually bring it home to say, look, it, when you guys were in dire straits, we responded. Now I'm asking you to do the same. It's a pretty powerful message, isn't it? Absolutely, because if you tailor the message to different countries, of course, you you know uh, uh, really w- what buttons to push, push in a way in terms of uh, what will make people uh, more emotional and also uh, what will increase their level of empathy towards your, your situation. And so it's always this idea, you know, I put myself in your shoes and you put yourself in mine. And, and, and I think that creates stronger, stronger ties, uh, emotional and intellectual ties uh, uh, between him his cause and and uh, the the people he's uh, speaking to, and and there's it's a double sided message, and he's done this I guess with every one of the addresses he's made now. Uh, you know he's thankful I guess for the the help you know the sanctions that are going on and of course the the assistance both militarily and and from a, a humanitarian standpoint. 
but the message here seems to be thank you so much for this but we need more and and i guess the question daniel at this stage is what are we going to do about this how can we respond to this yeah i think there is more that can be done in terms of military and humanitarian assistance i think there is more that can be done in terms of sanctions um, i think the most important thing right now is what's happening in europe in terms of uh, oil and gas, uh, especially natural gas. We know countries like Germany rely extensively on Russian gas, um, and 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 they are moving uh, uh, forward with a plan to reduce uh, their uh, their uh, dependency on uh, on Russian oil and gas. But that is, you know, a major way to found the regime is oil and gas, and 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 I think if European countries can move really fast in that direction. And if we can help them uh, uh, doing that, um, I think this this will be really a blow to the uh, the Putin regime uh, because without oil and gas money, they are really weakened. You know, the Russian economy, if you look at their exports, it's oil, gas, uh, weapons and wheat are among the, the main commodities that they sell. And, and I think that the sanctions have been uh, unprecedented, uh, but we can certainly do more. But the issue is... I think oil and gas, especially in in uh, um, in Europe, uh, and that they are taking uh, bold steps right now to uh, uh, to really increase their autonomy vis-à-vis Russia. Because if they are so dependent on Russian oil and gas, uh, uh, Putin as a, a major asset here. Uh, it's a major source of power for for his regime, um, and and I think um, uh, this is really. Uh, the most important, uh, uh, the more the most important aspect of this economic uh, uh, fight um, against Russia is is uh, on the oil and gas front. I, I want to circle back to the uh, to the energy aspect in just a second, but you mentioned arms as well as one of their exports. Uh, one of their biggest buyers, of course, is is India. Uh, is is that why India seems to be sitting on the fence on this issue? Yes, India is sitting on the fence, and so is China. Yeah. Uh, I think there's strong pressure on the part of uh, um, the United States and, and uh, its allies, including Canada, on, on pressures on India and China for them to take a stance against uh, uh, the Russian aggression, the Russian, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, or at least not to help uh, Russia. And we know that uh, Russia already sought military uh support from from china in terms of getting some weapons and drones and so forth getting some assistance from china and we have to prevent that from happening so china is crucial here and yes on the economic front especially india is very important as well we have to make it clear to uh, um, these countries that uh, they have to uh, um, they have to pick a side in a way and they have to be on the right side of history um, uh, and 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 if they uh, they help Russia at, at this stage, they will be complicit in in uh, uh, in its aggression and its invasion of Ukraine and all the human rights abuse uh, uh, that that we are seeing right now on the ground in Ukraine. There seemed to be some uh, some intelligence that that discussion between China and Russia had already occurred, Daniel, as you know. Uh, the U.S. apparently, diplomatically anyway, uh, have had discussions with the Chinese and basically told them to back off. I, and the last story we saw yesterday from Washington was they said, okay, we're not going to get involved. Can we believe them? Well, you know, the, the 
Chinese officials are quite pragmatic in terms of their foreign policy, and they use other countries like Russia and the U.S. You know, as in a, in the form of checks and balances, right? Counterpowers, and and so if they know that they could become the target of sanctions if they support Russia militarily, then they they are likely to back off because they face a lot of challenges at home economically, and also now COVID cases are going up and so forth. They have their own issues and problems to uh, to address. Um, and also, they, um, they they are in a in a position where they you know they they economically uh, they will have a lot of, to lose uh, if the relationship between their country and both the United States, Canada, and European Union will deteriorate because in, economically it's really uh, vital for 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 China. So I think they've been warned, and 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 the pressure on China should continue. Uh, so that they don't uh, support uh, Russia in this uh, this uh, invasion of Ukraine. But as we've talked about in the past, Daniel, the Chinese have their own agenda, don't they? I mean, they they have expansionist plans too. You know, look at Taiwan, uh, and and they you know apparently their their move in the last couple of months, especially to try to maintain dominance in 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 the South Pacific. So are they looking at this and, and what's happening with Russia and Ukraine? Does this embolden them, or does this give them pause to maybe you know? Maybe we just should back off for a little bit. Well, I think the the strong reaction to the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, in terms of the level of sanctions and the the military support to Ukraine and so forth, should give pause to the uh, the, the the Chinese regime. And, and they know what's happening. They are yes, they, they tend to, you know, they they, they 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 are as I said quite pragmatic in in what they are doing in terms of relationship with with different countries, and they see that Russia is not winning on the ground right now, and um, they 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 need to distance themselves from from Russia. It doesn't mean that they will necessarily condemn Russia explicitly, but at least if they don't support them, uh, um, it's already I think um, uh, a major step in, in the right direction. We noticed that, didn't we, in the last couple of votes in the United Nations about the condemnation of the Russian action. Uh, in both those votes, uh, China did not vote. They abstained in both. Did, what do you read into that? Well, again, I, I think that, uh, that for the, the China has collaborated with Russia. They see Russia as a way to counterbalance some of the U.S. and uh, EU power. So they use these countries against one another in a way uh, um, to their benefit but I think that they, they probably, at first, I'm, I'm not sure if they were actually um, a bit taken aback by uh, the Russian move. I'm not sure they were actually warned uh, that there will be a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And, and so I, I think that, you know, the, the, Chinese, uh, the, the Chinese regime, they're probably not happy about, you know, uh, uh, this entire situation because it puts them in a really difficult spot. And I do think that they are trying to clarify their position. Uh, we heard some Chinese officials saying, oh, what's happening in Ukraine? You know, Ukraine and Taiwan are two very different things. And, and Taiwan is part of China. Ukraine is not part of Russia and so forth. So they, 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 they are trying to, in a way, distance themselves from what, what's happening in Ukraine right now. But they are being pushed by, by the U.S. and European Union, Canada and other countries to really... Uh, 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 choose, you know, pick a side in this in this battle. And so far, they have been reluctant to do this. 
but at least it seems that we are now preventing them from taking side uh, uh, with Russia. And that's what's really important. But, but they certainly could do more uh, um, uh, in terms of distancing themselves uh, from Russia. But I'm not sure they will have these you know, dramatic public statements about this. Uh, but they, they, might, uh, they might still uh, uh, send this message to Western diplomats that uh, they are not going to help Russia. What's the end game here, Danielle? Is, you know, we, even yesterday, just before we introduced Mr. President Zelensky, uh, the Prime Minister talked about even more sanction against uh, some of the oligarchs. It, 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 is there a belief here that this is actually going to be an effective tool and, and, and that kind of pressure is going to get the oligarchs to put pressure on Putin? I mean, it's a pretty complicated strategy right now, and it doesn't seem as if it's going to be an overnight strategy. Uh, and I guess the question we have to is, B, is it going to work? And, and more importantly, how long can Ukraine hang on? Yeah, exactly. No, in, in terms of my, my take on this is that the oligarchs are just one piece of the puzzle and and probably not the most important one. Uh, people, you know, it, it's quite spectacular to see these big yachts being being seized and so forth. But uh, I think the battle on the economic front, uh, the larger battle over, as I said, supply of oil, oil and gas to key European countries like Germany is much more important. Um, also, uh, what businesses have done uh, moving out of Russia. Uh, this is also important. And it was not a... a something that the, you know, the U.S. government or other Western governments uh, uh, dictated, right? It's companies decided to move out of, mm -hmm. of Russia because uh, uh, it's just bad for business, bad for their image. Um, and I think this is having a strong impact as well. We should not uh, underestimate the, 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 um, the power of these, uh, um, um, these form of, you know, companies removing their investments, their economic investments uh, uh, from, uh, uh, from Russia. But it's a complex uh, battle in terms of the economic front. Um, and there are, uh, again, um, uh, a lot of different sanctions that can be applied. But in the end, I think oil and gas is, is where uh, uh, most of the attention uh, should be focused on. Problem, of course, is... Uh you know, I guess places like Germany specifically, but Italy and other, uh, I guess, you know, agents that are that are using Russian oil and gas right now are saying, okay, that's fine, but who's going to make up the shortfall? And does the North American market have enough uh, capacity to, to be able to say, we got your back on this? I don't think the answer is yes right now, is it? No. So they will have to move in terms of conservation, trying to reduce maybe consumption, Green, uh, green energy as well, uh, increasing the supply of oil and gas from other sources than Russia. So there are a lot of, again, different things that they, they will have to do in a very, very short period of time. Now, if they are successful at, at this, and, uh, and in countries like Germany are talking about being able to, to do a lot of this uh, within the next nine months, uh, uh, will be actually uh, um, an interesting source of lessons for uh um, policies to adapt to climate change and energy policies um, because they need to um, uh, I don't think it's just that they need to buy their oil and gas elsewhere they need to reduce uh, their uh, oil and gas needs and, and doing that in a rapid way is, is you know is, is very very challenging uh, so, so again these countries uh, have a, a major challenge in front of them but in the long run from a geostrategical standpoint uh, relying less on oil and gas that they don't produce 
especially if it comes from Russia, but more generally, is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely it is. And I guess the, the the problem here is the the juxtaposition of that is, you know, yeah, we're heading into the, you know, the, the winter, the summer season, and I guess we're not hopefully going to use as much oil and gas as we would in the in a cold winter. But uh, you listen to Mr. President Zelensky's uh, plea yesterday, and there's a sense of urgency. I mean, when he uses verbs like annihilate, uh, the way the Russians are approaching this right now, you figure we need to do something now, today. And and that seemed to be his message again to the uh, to the U.S. Congress. And it's really ramping up the pressure on NATO to to do something about this to try to to curtail the uh, the 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 problems that are going on on a daily basis in Ukraine, isn't it? Yeah, we need to send more weapons uh, on the ground and humanitarian support. But weapons are very important, and uh, anti-air missiles and also anti-tank tank missiles and so forth. Uh, and we have already started to do this. I mean, I mean the NATO allies, uh, but we can ramp that up. There was also this discussion about having planes. Uh, we're talking about Polish planes, yeah. uh, maybe being sent to to Ukraine. But this is not. Uh, I think there is some uh, problems with that strategy right now. But I think that uh, there are uh, a lot of smaller weapons that can be sent quite easily to Ukraine, and they are making a difference on the ground. We can already see that. You know, Putin miscalculated. Uh, I think the resolve of the the Ukrainian people. Uh, also, they pro- underestimated, I think, the strength of the the Ukrainian military and also the strength of the Ukrainian uh, people in general. And I think that we need to do everything we can to support the Ukrainian people and, and its military. And without, of course, uh, triggering a third world war. And that's why yeah. we have also to be prudent and careful uh, uh, in, in what we are, we are doing here, because if we attack Russia directly, uh, then, of course, it's it's a very, very dangerous situation. But there's already a risk of escalation on the ground if Russia will use chemical weapons, for example, if there will be a nuclear accident, because they have, of course, nuclear plants in, in Ukraine. And we saw what happened at Chernobyl and other plant recently. Uh, there's also the risk of that, you know, uh, Russian missiles could fall on, you know, uh, NATO land, like in Poland and so forth, if they attack a uh, some uh, Ukrainian installations, military installations near the border of, say, Poland, and the missiles fall uh, onto Poland, Poland's land, uh, that could trigger a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia. And we don't want that. Exactly. Very volatile situation. Uh, Daniel, great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Take care. Take care. Daniel Bailan, of course, at McGill University of Montreal. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The other debate that's going to go on here and has been going on for the longest time here in the province of Ontario is our health care system and the funding for our health care system. And there's a, a concern for the number of people that are, are on that front line. We're talking about doctors, nurses, the people that are there to, to be there for us that are suggesting that this government, this Ford government, seems to have a hidden agenda when it comes to privatizing of health care. Uh, there's a, an op-ed piece that appeared in the Toronto Star about this that uh, raises some very legitimate questions about the issue and what's happening here. One of the authors is uh, Dr. Nancy Oliveri, who is a physician and professor of pediatrics, medicine, and public health services at the U of T. And uh, she joins us to talk about this. Uh, Doctor, great to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing yeah, well these days. Yeah, me too, Bill. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about your concerns here. Well, you know, my main concern as a physician, but as, as a patient or a potential patient as well, is that 
you know, what he Ford doesn't say when he makes these kind of cryptic, stealthy announcements about independent health facilities, which you kind of have to have a translator to realize he's talking about for-profit hospitals is that what's the data on for-profit hospitals? And that comes from analyses from McMaster itself that shows that death rates are higher, complications are higher in for-profit hospitals versus not-for-profit. So what's not being said is, okay, guys, um, we're going to try to speed up wait times. I'm going to get to that in a minute, Bill, because it doesn't do anything of the sort. But we forgot to tell you that more of you will die unnecessarily compared to care in in not-for-profit. So, yeah, it'll be speeded up, but, you know, more of you will be dead. Kind of reminds you of that Groucho Marx joke, like the food is so terrible here and such small portions. (laughs) It's terrible. This is death guaranteed in the for-profit system. So then people will say, and I've had a lot of response to this op-ed that says, well, but... You know, that means that wait times will go down in the public sector. And this, of course, is what in the tsunami of COVID, Ford and his ministers are saying. We have too many backlog. We have surgeries that are backlog. Never mind that it's the result of years of of underfunding for our system that has created that. But the most important point is that wait times don't improve when you go to for-profit care. So... You know, for an example, Australia expanded it, went to a two-tier system, and it found that the for-profit system, the addition of a for-profit system doesn't decrease wait times. It increases wait times. A few of the rich will get faster care, but most of us will not. But this is the argument that governments have always had, and it's not just the Ford government, of course. You know, this this is yeah. a debate, as you know, Doctor. It's been going on in Alberta, well, just about every province, I guess. Yeah. And and it seems to be the short term answer that just about every government gives is let's let's do a hybrid model. Let's let's let the private sector in here. 100%. But I, I'm particularly concerned about what's going on here in Ontario, as you, as you wrote about in the op-ed piece. And your, your co-authors, by the way, Natalie Mira, who's been on this program many times, and Michael Hurley, of course. Yes. Uh, you, you're on the front line. You understand what's going on. You see the result of this. But this government seems to have uh, a propensity for, for bringing the private sector into this. We've had a lot of discussions, as you know, Doctor, about the long-term care facilities. Yeah. Uh, the government seems to really have a, 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 a passion for the private sector in there, although the statistics indicate that the private sector has less uh, positive outcomes with patients in, in, in long-term care facilities. We've seen that happen with the education system, and now they're doing it with the hospital system. This is supposed to be sacrosanct, and they're, they're, they're meddling with something that I, I don't really think a lot of taxpayers want to see them meddling in. 100% Bill. I mean, you mentioned Natalie and Michael. They've been on the front lines. They've written about this. Another person who's written about this and talked about it is Linda McQuaig. I mean, privatization, this sacred cow that the private sector always does things better. I share with you the conviction that Ontarians don't believe that, that Canadians don't believe that. Uh, they understand. They don't need to understand because all they have to do is look at the data which shows that the private system does not do it. It's more expensive and is less good care. You know, what shocks me, having had several relatives in hemodialysis, is this very careful analysis 20 years ago and then last year on private hemodialysis clinics. These are the kind of clinics that are going to pop up under Ford if he gets elected on June 2nd or re-elected on June 2nd. And what happens in those is not just that they employ lower skilled workers instead of nurses and doctors. 40 years ago at St. Joseph's Hospital Hamilton, doctors and nurses were there supervising the public system in hemodialysis. 
what happens here is that less skilled workers are employed, shift workers are employed, and here's the real kicker, Bill. They give shorter wait, shorter dialysis times to patients. They cut them off. Instead of a four and a half hour dialysis, you get a three and a half hour dialysis. Why does that matter? It matters because that's increased mortality for the patient. Shorter time. So you would probably say to me, oh, come on, Nancy, that wouldn't happen. It does happen in for-profit care because for-profit is the reason these, these uh, clinics and these hospitals exist. They exist for profit and you have to cut care. We've seen, as you've already outlined, we've seen it in long-term care. We don't, you know, people have gone deaf explaining how this is not the case. I think Ford and his minions think we are stupider than we are. And we are not. People realize the public system must be funded. The old classic, starve it until it looks so bad, then you look like a hero introducing private care. But you're no hero because that's not the solution. As you've just said, it's all short term. It's not going to work long term. Well, and it's the government's attitude, I guess, doctor, that really bothers me about this. And I'm always reminded, and you just reminded me again as, as you were talking there, but uh, a, a former minister of education years ago, which happened, by the way, in the Mike Harris government, uh, mm -hmm. education minister who basically said, how do you manipulate the system? You create a crisis and then say, exactly. hey, I'm the guy with the solution for that yeah. crisis. Yeah. And that's what yeah. they've done. They did it with education, certainly, but they're doing it with healthcare now, too. And, you know, it. You know, they say, okay, wait times are too high. So what have they done? They've cut the funding for hospitals. They've cut the funding for health care, which is making a bad situation even worse. And and I guess the concern I've got, because I'm a consumer, I'm a patient, right? Uh, we're all potential patients in situations. If they screw this up, you die. <laughs> it's it's not, oh, I'm going to have to wait a few more months for this. You die. When Michael and Natalie and I were writing this, I said, you know what bothers me the worst is kind of the fundamental point of healthcare is healthcare is making you better, reducing complications, and hopefully improving your survival. So what we really should be campaigning on here for it is I'm going to give you private care and more of you are going to die. We, we more or less said that in our op-ed is that, you know, that's exactly what I'm promising you. Now, it is such a direct and gross message, Bill, that I think a lot of people resile from that, think that can't happen. That can't be anybody. He, he can't not care about us so much that he's resigning us to private for-profit care that is worse for us. But that is exactly what's happening. And on your show, I hope it's me reaching millions here. This is exactly what's happening. We are going to have worse care. And we are not going to have recourse to it. Just look at what happened with long-term care. They took away much of the accountability for private uh, long-term care disasters. That's going to happen. You're going to have less accountability than you do now. I just can't overstate the concern here that on June 2nd, if you don't think about this, if you really think two-tier healthcare system is working, then you should look at all the data which suggests that it emphatically is not working. Well, the classic example, I know we're just about out of time here, but I, this, oh. th th there's some points here, is, Doctor, that you point out in, in the op-ed piece that just have to be talked about here. And one of them is, is two-tier systems. And I know people say, oh, come on, what's the big deal? You know, I yeah. need an MRI or I need a, you know, it's, I can go over to Buffalo and get it instead of waiting in Hamilton. But it's the quality of care that you're going to get here. And the, the best example of that, I guess, is, is, you know, when Donald Trump was diagnosed with COVID. And, you know, here's a guy who didn't even believe in COVID and they rushed him off to Walter Reed Hospital. And <laughs> lo and behold, you know, five days later, he's cured yeah. well, because he got a level of care that no one else in the United States was 100%. access to. 
And well, I, you know, and that's just that's not right. I'm God bless him. He's he's still alive for better or worse. But he got something that no one else is going to get. If Joe Blow in, in Dubuque, Iowa, had the same th- diagnosis and goes to the local hospital, they're not going to get that level of care. If you can afford it, you can get it. If you can't, too bad, so sad. And that's not really, I think, what we want out of our healthcare system, isn't it? No, it is not. And it's it's. Uh, there are people watching this from the U.S. saying, are you people crazy? You must fight this with every fiber of your being because this is what we're facing. Your example of Donald Trump, Trump is right on. You know, we as more people go into the private system, the public system will progressively starve for 90% of us. So people really think going to Buffalo is the solution. That's not the issue. Once we have private clinics here, we drain from our public system. So just as you said, we're going to get worse care. We're going to die unnecessarily. The study that defined this 20 years ago at McMaster looked at infants. They died at a higher rate in the private system, Bill. If that doesn't get your goat, nothing else will. You cannot. There, there are some things that must be removed from for profit. And it's just got to be health care, first and foremost, and then education, of course, but both. So it's just, it's a fight to June 2nd, Bill. It's going to be a fight, and we can win it. Well, we've got to bring this front and center. And, and I'm yes, so glad do. you had some time to talk to us about this today because it's, it's a conversation we have to have. And I know we got a lot of stuff on our minds these days. You know, we're coming out of COVID, the economy, yeah. inflation, uh, yeah. the price of gas, yada, yada, and all those there. But <laughs> yeah. healthcare, let's face it, every time there's an election, provincial, municipal even, healthcare is the number one issue. Yep. And, and it's got to be the number one yeah. issue in this provincial election, too. Yes, yes. I think Ontarians have to believe that, yes, it could get this bad. Once we're convinced of that, more would fight. Doctor, uh, I'll, I'll direct people once again to go to the uh, to Toronto Star website, torontostar.com, and, and see the op-ed piece for themselves uh, and talk about it. Uh, you know, talk to your friends, talk, talk to your family about, about this, because it's it's a big issue. Always a pleasure to have you on the program, you Doctor. Thanks so much for this. Thanks so much, Bill. Thank you. Take Thank care. You. Dr. Nancy Alvary, of course, uh, Hamilton native, as a matter of fact, physician and professor of pediatrics and medicine and public health at the University of Toronto and, of course, at Toronto General Hospital as well. It's, it's, it's a big deal. It really is when we start talking about the level of care that we're going to get. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.